Let me begin our, our time together with a bit of an apology. We, um, we've commissioned a missionary. We've celebrated baptism. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our time together. We just couldn't fit the foot washing in today. I apologize for that. But everything else, every other way you can worship Jesus, we've put into this service to the glory of his name. There's a need I need to let you know about. Perhaps you could help. Um, during this hour, our two-year-old class remains without a teacher. And if you're willing to love on some little kids in Jesus' name, we could use your help. I know that would mean you'd have to flip worship services, but if you have the flexibility to do that, um, these little ones and their families need your help. And Stephanie Jackson will be out in the lobby near the children's entrance there after the service, I'm sure, if you would be willing to talk with her about, about that need. But uh, thank you for considering serving our little ones in that way. As Daniel mentioned, this is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent technically started on Wednesday. That's Ash Wednesday. It's, it runs for 40 days minus the Sundays leading up to uh, Easter Sunday. And it is a season to celebrate the mercy of Christ in his suffering. Where we meditate on the depth of his love for us. And we have some resources on our website. If you'll go there on the banner, you'll be able to find them. One of them is a daily devotional called Journey to the Cross. It's produced by a church in Texas, and it is a wonderful resource. If you'd like to have some daily meditations, there are some others there that you can explore as well. But I would highly recommend that. Lent, in that, in that devotional, it says that Lent is a season of preparation and repentance during which we appreciate the death on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday of Jesus. These are aimed at grasping the intense significance of the crucifixion that gives us a deep and powerful longing for the resurrection and the joy of Easter. So we begin that together today. There's an ancient tradition in many Christian traditions called um, the Stations of the Cross or the Way of the Cross. And basically, it's a time where you follow Jesus, literally, down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering that he traveled um, in Jerusalem. And so for the next six weeks, we will, as a church family, be following the way of the cross, um, beginning on Thursday evening, following Jesus to the cross on that Friday morning. Um, mostly, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, that's where we'll be this morning. But we'll be drawing on the other Gospels too as they bring details unique to them to our, to our story. We'll also be taking the Lord's Supper each Sunday in Lent. So this morning we'll take it at the close of our time. Let me encourage you um, to use these two aisles to return to your seat and the center aisle here and the wall aisles to approach the table just, uh, just for traffic flow during that time. The Lord's table at Northwake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who is currently walking in fellowship with him. And so I hope you'll use the, the message that's being brought to ready your heart for that closing time of worship around the table today. So if you'll bow with me, let me pray for us as we open the word. Jesus now, in your mercy, show us the depth of your love for us, that we might carry it out here and be shaped by it and share it with those we love who need it so desperately. We pray this in your great name. Amen. So we begin our journey on Thursday night. We call it Maundy Thursday. 
Um, it's just hours from Jesus' crucifixion on Friday morning. And Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet and together they've shared the Passover meal. And Jesus has vested it with new meaning concerning his own body and blood shed for the deliverance of our sins. And now they've left that upper room where the foot washing and the supper had taken place. And we begin to follow Jesus at this point on that Thursday night before the cross. Starting in Luke chapter 22 verse 39. He came out of that upper room and Jesus went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. It says this was his custom, it was his usual practice. Apparently, Jesus regularly spent the night during this last week on this mount with his disciples. Just a chapter before in Luke, we read that every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Now, why does that matter? Why does Luke point out to us that he went there? And I, I think Luke is telling us in so many words that Jesus was not hiding. He was not changing his routine so his enemies couldn't find him. Um, his former friends couldn't find him. It seems that Jesus is intentionally going to the place where he could be most easily found. Jesus, um, Jesus is not hiding. He is willingly laying down his life for us as a sacrifice for our sins. William Hendrickson writes that Jesus must make, and he wants to make, a voluntary sacrifice. The only kind of sacrifice that will suffice as an atonement for the sins of all those who trust in him. And at this point, Jesus was literally being hunted to death. Um, look at how our chapter begins in verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Seeking how to put him to death. And the way John puts it in his account, it's almost like Jesus is trying to give himself away to them. In chapter 18 of John, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. See, that's how Judas knew where to find them. Jesus was often here in this place of prayer with his friends. He's following his normal routine. Why isn't Jesus hiding? Why, isn't he, um, why is he going to the one place where his betrayer knew to look for him? And to make sense out of what Jesus is doing and what he's about to do, I think you need to know two really important things about Jesus. First, he being the Son of God deeply loves God the Father. And that love is demonstrated in Jesus' life by his obedience to his Father. As we saw last week, Submission is one of the Christ-like shape that love takes. So we read, as Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus is in this garden doing the will of the Father because he loves him so very, very much. That's the first thing we need to know to make sense out of all this. The second thing that you need to know is that Jesus loves 
you very, very much. And you'll see this on display throughout this Monday, Thursday evening, throughout this whole journey to the cross. Jesus is displaying what he'd earlier said in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Why is Jesus doing this? He is loving you. And on this night, in this garden, Jesus is, as Christina Rossetti put it in her hymn, he is love incarnate. And love is shaping everything that Jesus does. Now, each of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life tells this story of his travel to the Mount of Olives. Um, But they add little details. John tells us, as we just read, that Jesus went to a garden. And Matthew and Mark tell us its name. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, we call it. It's also been called the Second Garden. Um, Let me see if I can explain to you why. Long ago, in the 5th century, in fact, there was a, a, a Christian by the name of Cyril of Alexandria, and he wrote this. He said, the troubles of humanity began in the Garden of Paradise, the first garden. While Christ's suffering, which brought us deliverance from all the evil that ever happened to us in times past, began in this garden of passion, the second garden. And so this morning, I just want to invite you, come and walk with Jesus in this second garden that begins the restoration of mankind to God. When he came to the place, Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So Jesus is just hours from the cross. And what is he concerned about? He's concerned for his friends that they don't fall into temptation. Here we see Jesus' selfless love for his friends. He cares for them as he protects them. Love is splashing out of him onto his disciples even as his arrest is imminent and the cross is only hours away. That old chorus has it right. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. And his love here takes a particularly protective shape as he urges his disciples to stay faithful in prayer as a way to protect them. He doesn't just urge it once in our passage. If you look down to verse 46, he says it again. He says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. According to Matthew's telling, Jesus does this not once or twice, but he actually does this three times with his disciples. He urges prayer upon his disciples, and each time they fail, succumbing to sleep, which which is understandable, I suppose, because it's after midnight. But there is a great temptation looming here, and the disciples' prayerlessness is making them vulnerable. That temptation is the temptation to deny Jesus, and they will all fall prey to that peril within the hour. Matthew's stark telling of it just puts it this way. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All of them. There is a sense, I suppose, that this is not a unique 
temptation at all. After all, this is what every temptation is, right? It's a temptation to deny Christ. It's never put to us like this, but the question of every temptation is, will you deny Christ? It's never that bold. It's subtle, it's discreet, it's almost imperceptible. But when you're tempted to take another look at that website, you can almost hear the whisper, will you deny Christ for this? When you're tempted to dominate, when you're tempted to power up and demand your way, when you feel your anger rising, or you become aware of your fear robbing you of trust, the real question before you in that moment is this one, will you deny Christ now? And Jesus says that prayer is integral to how we will answer. Prayer keeps us from yielding to temptation, Jesus is saying. I, I imagine the disciples really wanted to be there for Jesus, but their eyes were too heavy. You know what that's like. Some of you fight that battle right in this very room, right? But Luke says they were exhausted, in verse 45, from their sorrow. It would seem that the predictions of Jesus, that Jesus kept giving about his suffering and death, may have been beginning to get through to them. But Jesus says to guard them from their sorrowful fears, come away with me and pray. Jesus calls them to an hour of prayer. It would seem that extended times of prayer, even in the dark hours, have a great power to safeguard our heart from the temptations that would ensnare us. And yet the disciples failed, not once or twice, but three times to watch and to pray. Have you ever spent an hour in prayer? Jesus says, pray or you will fall. And they fell asleep in the place of prayer and then they fell headlong into a temptation and they abandoned Jesus to the last man. The easiest step I know into an extended time of prayer for the first time is come to our corporate prayer gathering once a month on Sunday night. We pray for just a little over an hour. It's interspersed with worship and encouraging testimonies. Uh, It's a great first step in learning how to pray for a longer period of time. In love, Jesus is calling you to pray. And you ignore his loving plea this morning at your peril. Prayerlessness makes you vulnerable to denying the one who loves you so. So on this Thursday night, in this garden, we find Jesus in his darkest hour, concerned not about his own sorrow, but also concerned that his soon-to-be unfaithful friends would be safe from temptation. This is the wonder of Jesus' love. He knowingly loves those who are about to desert him. And in a sacred retelling of it, we hear from Luke the words that Jesus actually prayed. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The cup, it can be a picture of 
of the wrath and judgment of God upon sin that Jesus would drink to the full on the cross. He will drink the cup that we deserve. And in prayer, Jesus is solidifying his love for the Father over and above all other loves. The love of self-preservation among them. Because of love, Jesus will drink the cup. And Matthew tells us he didn't pray this agonizing prayer once or twice, but he labored to submit to his Father's plan three times. He went away and prayed third time, Matthew says. And so Jesus is set up here as a contrast with his disciples. They fail to pray and fail to trust. And Jesus chooses to pray and he trusts even unto death. Prayer Jesus is showing us fortifies the soul against temptation. Now the cup of suffering that Jesus is facing was really, really dark for him. It says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and our, our Bibles render it in a variety of ways. He was depressed and confused. He was grieved and agitated. He felt anguish and dismay. He was sad. And so we might think Jesus was depressed. He was confused. He was dismayed. Isn't that wrong to feel that way? It's not wrong. It's just human. And Jesus became human. In every way short of sin, he became one of us. He suffered like one of us. He didn't become a robot or Superman. He emptied himself, took on our likeness, our form, and here we see his humanity on display, perhaps like nowhere else. And he did what you and I must do when we are depressed and anguished and dismayed and we feel like the world's about to crush the life out of us. We must draw praying friends near and we must pray or the temptations will swallow us alive. The burden Jesus was about to bear for us was so agonizing that he wished he did not have to bear it. And no matter how you explain the sweat-like drops of blood he shed there, Clearly, he is in anguish over what he is facing. As he anticipates the suffering and the shedding of his life's blood on the cross, as one writer put it, he is being torn apart by agony here. And yet Jesus will not yield. He loves the Father too much. He loves you too much. It says, while he was still speaking to his disciples, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the twelve. He was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So this crowd that Jesus or that Judas assembled is described in the various accounts as uh, containing a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort could have been hundreds of soldiers involved there. Some officers from the chief priests, and there were Pharisees and scribes and elders, and there were temple police. Matthew says it was a great crowd that came to arrest Jesus. It's been pointed out that this this posse um, represents the whole human race. There were Gentile Roman soldiers alongside an astonishing assortment of Jewish religious leaders of the day. And all of them were led by a one-time Christian disciple, Judas. 
And Judas leads the way with a kiss. It was a greeting among friends. And he twists it to signal his betrayal. There's a songwriter named Michael Card. He reflected on Judas' kiss and he says, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. Can you imagine the sorrow, the devastating sorrow for Jesus of being betrayed by one of his own Yet Luke says that Jesus still calls Judas by name. He calls, him, he calls him Judas by name. Matthew says he calls him friend. Doesn't call him traitor or backstabber. And I wonder, could it be that Jesus, even at this hour, still cares for Judas? It wouldn't surprise me that, that the one who would pray for those who... Na- Put the nails in his hands. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It doesn't surprise me that he would care about Judas too. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. So these bold disciples, these reckless disciples, are rebuked by Jesus. And it seems like they're missing the point. They don't need to defend Jesus. No one is taking Jesus into captivity. In love, he is laying his life down for us. But I wonder is the fact that they're missing the plan of God, even to the extent where they end up opposing the plan of God, just another consequence of their prayerlessness? And so John records these words spoken to bold and reckless Peter. Surprise, surprise, he's the one who cut the guy's ear off. John says to, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's the Father's plan, this, this craziness, this betrayal, this arrest, this suffering. And Jesus will walk no other path, though he could. John tells us that when they came and inquired where Jesus was, Jesus stepped forward and said two words. He said, I am. And at that saying, which is the same language that, that God used to reveal himself in the book of Exodus, he said, I am that I am. And Jesus, when he mentions God's name and identifies himself, it says that his, his persecutors fell back. And elsewhere, Jesus says, if I wanted to, I could call legions of angels. Maybe 60,000 angelic warriors could come and deliver me. They are not taking Jesus' life. He is laying it down in love. It is his Father's plan, and Jesus, the Son, will not depart from it. He walks this path in submission to the will of his Father of his own choosing. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is choosing this path of redemptive suffering. He walks it freely because he loves his Father so very, very much. And because he loves you so very, very much.
Now John adds another little detail to Luke's sparse account. He tells us the servant's name who lost his ear. His name is Malchus. And Malchus is there as an enemy of Jesus. He is aligned with the wrong side, uh, the dark side, if you will. And yet, what does Jesus do? He cares for him. He heals his ear on the spot with a mere touch. He was gentle with Judas. He was concerned for his sleeping disciples. And now he heals Malchus. Jesus is placing everyone's interests above his own, even ours. And Jesus said to them, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber? Some say that could be rendered a terrorist. With swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You have to wonder, what were the religious leaders doing here in the darkness on this Passover night? They really shouldn't have been here. But perhaps even these words of rebuke of Jesus are words of care even for this arresting posse. A chance for even the rabble to come, that came to arrest him and take him to death might come to their senses and see how wrong this all seems. But then according to Matthew, all the disciples left him and they fled. And so here in the garden, we see Jesus Sorrowful unto death, seeking strength and solace in prayer. And even here in his greatest of sorrows, he's love incarnate. He is speaking kindly to all. He's healing Malchus' ear. When he's suffering most, he's concerned for his friends, the very ones who were about to desert him when he needed them most. When they failed him, he loved them still. When we fail him, he loves us still. Dale Bruner observes that Jesus is now bound. Yes. But he is bound so that one day we, sinful world, an errant church, can repent, believe, and be miraculously unbound from our sin. Such that Paul can write in Romans 8, there is for us, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, on this night, in this garden, chooses to drink the cup so that we won't have to. The cup that we deserve to drink. Oh, how he loves you and me. And so now we come to this table. And it's a time for us to remember and not forget the love of Christ for us. Who can come to this table? Only those who are worthy? Surely not. You know, it's interesting that the night of the supper is the night of desertion. Even deserters are welcome here. Deserters who don't want to desert anymore. So this morning, if you are willing to repent and draw near to Jesus and find mercy, then come to this table 
where we commune with Christ by the Spirit and we find in him grace to help us in our time of need. To the table of remembrance and love. As Charles Wesley put it, sinners, my gracious Lord receives harlots and publicans and thieves, drunkards and all ye hellish crew. I have a message now to you. Come and partake the gospel feast. Be saved from sin in Jesus' rest. Oh, taste the goodness of your God. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. So come, all you sorry sinners, right? That is what we are. Come to the table of grace and mercy and love and remember the one who has loved you so. And on the night on which he was betrayed, we read that Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup, and he said, this cup, it's, it's the new covenant in my blood, and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Pray with me as we come to the table. So Jesus, we remember together tonight, oh, how you love us. Oh, how we love us. That on this night as we remember, you were in that garden, struggling with the burden of our sin and all the sorrow that it brings. And you said yes, because you love the Father and you love us. And so we come now to worship you and to remember you, to honor you at this table. We pray in your great name.